1: Welcome to Mind Love, episode 100. Today's episode is all about how to learn quickly and deeply.
0: If we can increase the variety of ways that you approach learning something, then I think there is actually a lot more opportunity to learn things, even if you maybe struggled it in the past. So even if you don't have necessarily a learning disability, if you tried learning Spanish in high school, for instance, and you failed at it and you felt like you weren't able to speak it, well, that might mean that you don't have the language gene or you have some language learning disability, or maybe, and perhaps even a lot more likely, you just weren't taught it in a way that was very effective or very effective for you. And so I think that Things like ultra learning, things like this self-directed learning are really about creating more choice. And if you have more choice, I think it's a lot easier to overcome some of those handicaps or difficulties you might have experienced in the past.
1: Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monty. Real quick, don't forget to subscribe. Seriously, hit that little subscribe button right now. More subscribers means even better guests, which means more value for you. Plus it helps grow the show. So please subscribe and help more people get a little dose of mind love each day. Hi friends and wild minds. What if you could learn anything in just a few months from learning a language to becoming a skilled guitar player? Being able to learn something really well and really fast is about more than just developing a bunch of cool party tricks, although that too. What you learn becomes a part of you. It levels you up. So learning helps you become things. So let me ask this in another way. If you could learn anything deeply and quickly, who would you become? Growing up, most of us were taught specific ways to learn. You were given standardized tests and you had to become proficient in basic skills and studies. And if you didn't quite fit the mold, maybe you felt like you were inadequate or you weren't enough. But this rigid way of learning is actually just one way. And our beliefs that it's the best way is just that, a belief. Wanna know what else is a belief about how we learn? that most learning stops after formal schooling. For most of us, by the time we're out of college and a few years into our first job, you feel like it's too late to re-educate yourself for a new career. Or maybe you're in your mid-30s and you feel like it's too late to really learn a new language, which has always been your dream. The older you get, the more responsibilities, the more bills, the less time. So learning a totally new profession or a totally new skill basically reinventing yourself, might feel impossible right now. Well, today's episode is going to change all that. If you're looking for a slow, meditative episode, you might want to check out last week's because this one is not that. This episode is jam-packed with actionable information. Actually, it's a whole proven framework about how to master any skill quickly. And today, our guest is Scott Young, the author of Ultra Learning. Scott has made it his life work to undertake interesting self-education projects like attempting to learn MIT's four-year computer science curriculum in just 12 months and learning four languages in one year. And what he's learning from all this learning, he's sharing with us today. So if you're the kind of person who listens to your podcasts on two times the speed, I almost guarantee you're going to slow this down to regular speed. Scott is super knowledgeable about everything I ask him, probably from all that learning. And we had to pack a lot in one episode. So three key things we will learn are the most effective learning methods to learn anything deeply and quickly, how to design a learning project that you can actually accomplish, and new training methods to help you push through to higher levels of retention. But before we dive in, have you signed up for the morning mind love yet? Sometimes we all need a little boost to start each day with a positive mindset. The Morning Mind Love does just that. It delivers short, daily, inspirational messages for free. People message me every single day saying that the message that came through is exactly what they needed to hear. Like Carrie, who said, your morning mind loves are the foundation of my day, and I look forward to them every morning I arrive to work. You've become a part of my daily ritual, and I couldn't be more thankful. And then there's Casey, who recently replied to one saying, this made me cry. I can't even tell you how much these daily emails mean to me. Just visit mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. You'll get some great free gifts when you do, like a free 30-minute binaural affirmation meditation and a free workbook to help you gain clarity and live with intention. And it's all completely free. Go to mindlove.com to sign up and if you're out and about, just text the word MORNING to 33777. That's MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Scott Young to the show.
0: Oh, it's great to be here.
1: All right, so let's start with the basics. Where did the idea of ultra learning originally come from?
0: Yeah, so well, as I mentioned in the book, my kind of first real encounter of it was when I was struggling with learning something. So I mentioned in the book how I had this experience of doing an exchange in France and kind of struggling to learn French, which is sort of surprising because you kind of think, oh, well, if you go to another country, if you live abroad, it should be really easy to learn another language. And I found that it was actually kind of challenging, that most people spoke to me in English all the time. I found it hard to practice. And this is when I was introduced to this guy, Benny Lewis, who I talk about in the book, who speaks 10 plus languages and has a website very modestly titled fluent in three months where he's taken these projects where he's tried to learn a language in as little as three months. And I mean, he's learned all sorts of languages, you know, not only a number of European ones, but Arabic and Mandarin Chinese and others like that. And so this was sort of my first kind of light bulb moment that you could approach learning in a different way. And in particular, you didn't have to learn the way that you're taught things in school. And I know a lot of us have sometimes maybe even negative experiences of school where it can be boring or frustrating or you feel like you're not learning something very useful. And so seeing Benny Lewis do this kind of very unconventional approach to learning and getting much better results than I was getting was kind of a point in that direction. And I talk about a lot of other people I've met since then that have just done really incredible things for learning and they kind of have inspired me to do some of my own projects.
1: So you've titled your book Ultra Learning, but what exactly is ultra learning and how is it different from the conventional ways that we've learned?
0: So ultra learning I define as a combination of two things. So it's self-directed learning that's also aggressive. So what does that mean? Well, self-directed learning I'm putting in contrast to the way we typically think about learning, which is when you're in a school and there's a teacher or a book that's telling you what to do and you just sort of follow along. Like a recipe. You don't have a lot of autonomy. You don't make a lot of decisions about what am I learning? How am I going to learn? Often you don't even really know why you're learning what you're learning. And so self directedness means that you pick a project, something that you're really interested in, and then you design how you're going to go about learning it. And that contrasts it with the sort of typical way we often talk about education. And then aggressive in this context, what I really mean is that the people that I focus on, the ultra learners, are people who really focus on how do I learn as effectively as possible. And there's many points in the book where I talk about how research shows that taking something that is somewhat a little bit more effortful, it requires a little bit more deliberateness, maybe a little bit more focus, um, nonetheless produces a lot better results in terms of your eventual ability to be able to use a skill. And so I think aggressiveness is important here because very often what I see when it comes to kind of... Self-directed learning or people sort of learning things on their own is often taking a very kind of easy, passive approach, which turns out doesn't actually build very deep skills. And so the idea here was to focus on ultra learners or the people who manage to combine both of those things so well.
1: So this idea of ultra learning is basically learning something really deeply to where it becomes like a part of you, like a fluent language or learning how to play the piano all in a pretty short period of time. So do you think that anyone can do it? Do you need to quit your job and only focus on this? Or who is right for an ultra learning project?
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, first of all, I would say yes, anyone can do it. Because the basic idea of creating your own learning project and then really pursuing it is really open to anyone. The question is more just how far can you go? And so I think the question about how far you can go is going to depend on a lot of factors, not least of which is how much interest and enthusiasm do you have for learning. So I talk about a lot of pretty extreme examples in the book of people who went really further than almost anyone would to learn something really well. But I think these examples should be kind of more like a North Star that you orient towards rather than I have to do exactly that or it's not worth doing. And so the example I use when we're talking about language learning is Obviously, if you go to a country that speaks the language and you commit to only speaking that language for a concentrated period of time, you will learn it really quickly. But you can moderate this to do something that's more effective. So instead of using some app that probably isn't going to get you to actually having conversations with people, you can start trying to have a little conversation with someone or you could commit to only speaking the language in certain areas of your life so you can gear towards it. So I think the goal of the book is to get people excited about the possibilities that there are for learning, and indeed for learning in ways that don't require spending thousands of dollars on tuition or for giving up years of your life to go back to school, but can be done even if you have a job, even if you have other commitments, even if you have other constraints in your life. And so if you have that enthusiasm and you have that interest in learning something, I think then it's just an issue of how do you figure out what works for you. And that's a real personal process.
1: I'm curious. With what you know about learning now and the learning process, what are your thoughts on learning disabilities that so many of us grew up thinking we had?
0: Well, I think there are a lot of real learning disabilities. Like, I wouldn't want to say that someone who struggles with dyslexia or they struggle with very specific clinically recognized learning disabilities that they should feel they're just making it up. They're just faking it. That, of course, is not my mind. I actually think We're quite diverse and we all have different strengths and weaknesses. And so the point is never to say, oh, well, you should feel bad because you haven't performed as well as someone else did because maybe something was harder for you to learn. But rather, I think part of the challenge is that we've only been shown how to learn in one real way. We've been in this classroom environment where it's one size fits all. And if that worked for you, great. And if it didn't work for you, well, then the problem was you. And I don't want to say that there aren't differences in people's learning ability. But I think if we can increase the variety of ways that you approach learning something, then I think there is actually a lot more opportunity to learn things, even if you maybe struggled it in the past. So even if you don't have necessarily a learning disability, if you tried learning Spanish in high school, for instance, and you failed at it and you felt like you weren't able to speak it, well, that might mean that you don't have the language gene or you have some language learning disability, or maybe, and perhaps even a lot more likely, you just weren't taught it in a way that was very effective or very effective for you. And so I think that things like ultra learning, things like this self-directed learning are really about creating more choice. And if you have more choice, I think it's a lot easier to overcome some of those handicaps or difficulties you might have experienced in the past.
1: So I read in your book how one of your first projects was taking one of the free courses from MIT online and seeing if you could basically get an MIT degree without actually (laughs) attending the school. I'm curious because you said uh, one of the biggest factors is enthusiasm. What was driving your enthusiasm for completing that project?
0: Sure. So the background behind that story is that I went to an actual university and I got a degree in business. And I had originally gone into business because I thought it would be really great for running my own business. And it was only after waiting through HR classes and classes with organizational charts and all these sorts of things that I realized that most of what they're teaching in business school is how can you be a good middle manager? It wasn't really telling you how you could start in your own company. The stereotype of the business school grad who says, okay, I'm going to partner with some tech guy and I'll do the business stuff and you make the product and we'll split it 50-50. And then the, the kind of the joke is that the tech person is the one doing all the work. Now, I don't want to say that that's always true, but I definitely felt that way after graduating that I should have studied something where you actually get to make things. And so I was in, even in that time period, I was considering going back to school to study computer science. That was the other thing that I wanted to learn. And I was looking around and I was sort of like, well, how much is it going to cost and how many more years am I going to have to take to get a computer science degree. And so around this time, I stumble across this MIT Open Courseware. So MIT puts online a lot of their actual classes, recorded lectures, assignments with solutions, exams. You just put them online for free. Anyone can just look at them and take them from actual classes. And I was taking one of these classes and I was really impressed by the quality of the class. And so what I kind of was thinking at this time was, well, maybe this is an alternative. Maybe instead of trying to get a degree and going back to school and going through all those hoops, what if you kind of created a skeleton of a computer science degree? You just focus on, could I learn enough to pass the final exams and do the programming projects? And so this sort of evolved over time to be this MIT challenge. And so Aside from the intrinsic motivation of like, how can I get this knowledge without having to go back to school? I was very interested in it as well, because it didn't seem like other people were doing this. I I couldn't find an example of someone who had done this, where they had just used MIT's material to try to get a degree and or to try to learn the equivalent of degree, I should say. And so for me, it was also there was a kind of pioneering spirit that I was like, I imagined that there were going to be lots of people doing this kind of thing in the future. And so it kind of really excited me to try to be one of the first.
1: But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. Well, I would love to basically give listeners the skeleton of how to create their own ultra learning project. And that way, if they're excited to really dig into this, they can get the book. So when we first are considering some project to learn in the ultra learning form, are there any things to keep in mind when we're first picking a subject?
0: Yeah. So I think the first step of any project is the first principle in my book. So my my book's divided into nine principles. The first principle is called meta learning. And so meta learning is basically learning about the subject that you want to learn. And this is particularly important when you're taking on your own project because you have a difficulty. Obviously, if you already know the project when you're designing a curriculum or a class. It's very easy to say, okay, first students would have to learn this and then learn that and learn, then learn this. If you're doing that for yourself, well, you don't already know the subject. So it can seem like there's a bit of a catch-22. And the solution for this is to do a little bit of research ahead of time. Now, there's lots of different ways you can do research. I think the easiest way is to just go on to Google and say, like, what's the best way to learn this skill? And if the skill you're trying to learn or a subject you're trying to learn is quite popular, you'll probably get thousands of different things like, I want to learn programming. Okay, there's going to be a million resources that pop up, or I want to learn a language, or I want to learn public speaking. You're going to get lots and lots of recommendations. But piecing these together can give you a bit of a map. And this is the idea that I want to try to encourage people to kind of create this map of what would be involved in getting good at this skill. And I think this is something that's often missed, because if that map hasn't been given to you, or you're not in a situation where someone's telling you, okay, go exactly here, it seems like a lot of people can't find their way. And so I think that skill of first being able to break down a new skill and say, okay, well, what would actually be involved in learning this is so important. And so that's really the first step is trying to build that map of what is involved in learning that skill, not only what resources are available. So what online classes are there? What books are there? What instructions are there? What tutorials are there? But also things like what would I have to do in order to learn this? So if you're learning a language, you're going to, okay, well, I'm going to have to learn a lot of words. And so that automatically makes you think about, okay, well, how am I going to remember all those words? Or how am I going to practice speaking them or, or this kind of thing? And so I think if you can start building that map, you're already going to be well ahead of most people who are just sort of stumbling around trying to learn things.
1: So I can't even count how many times that I got super enthused to learn something new and -hmm. then that enthusiasm died down or I thought it was harder than I initially assumed it was going to be and it Mm -hmm. died down. So do you have any tips for maintaining that motivation throughout this project?
0: So I actually think that a lot of what allows you to get to the finish line actually occurs in the start. So if you are thinking about a big project, and I think your experience is a very common one, that you get some idea that, oh, I'm going to learn French. And then, okay, you download Duolingo, and then you start doing it for a while, and you're like, well, I'm not really making the progress that I wanted to make, or oh, this is actually harder. I don't seem to remember the words that much, or I can't say things. And, and then you get dispirited and you give up. And so this is a big reason for doing this meta learning is not only to have a sound strategy so that you know, okay, well, if I follow this, I'll probably be making pretty good progress. And if it's not working, I have some alternatives. I have some like plan Bs that I can enact to kind of fix some weaknesses and go down different paths. But I think also part of it is that the conception of the project of what you're actually trying to do, it helps when that is more clear as you start out. So I think, again, the problem with learning is that it can often be this sort of amorphous, vague task that, well, I want to get better at business what the heck does that mean? Right? Like that's not a really concrete project. Whereas in contrast, if you had narrowed it down, if you said, okay, well, I want to understand accounting enough to be able to file my own taxes for my company. Okay. That's a very concrete goal. Now that's something you can actually sink your teeth in. Similarly, I want to learn programming. Okay. Well, Again, that's a huge task that might take you years and it could lead in all sorts of directions. But if you simplified it to, okay, well, I want to be able to build my own website or I want to be able to write a script to process some Excel files or I want to be able to do something to automatically add to my emails or something to type out some message. That's actually a much more constrained task is something that you can actually manageably work on. So. Usually what I recommend is constraining the scope. So don't think about just trying to learn everything. Don't try to learn an entire subject, but constrain it. And you can constrain it in multiple ways. One way is through the outcome, like I just mentioned, where you're thinking of some end product you want to create. In other times, you can focus on a specific course or book or like concrete set of materials that someone else has prepared that you want to work through. And I think that can also be useful if you have no idea kind of what's realistic to expect for working on a skill. But constraining the scope and actually thinking about it in terms of a project so that it's not just, well, I want to learn X, but for the next three months, I'm going to spend this amount of time and I'm going to use these resources to learn this skill in this way. Already, if you can formulate it that way, I think you'll be able to maintain your motivation a lot further.
1: So would you recommend, like, say somebody's trying to learn the guitar, it's not learn (laughs) the guitar, but actually pick some more challenging piece of work and say, learn how to play that song or how exactly would that translate?
0: So I think, again, there's the two approaches that we could take here. So I don't think that the idea is that you necessarily need to know exactly where you're going to end up. I think it's usually useful to have a first milestone. So you could pick an easy guitar song. I wouldn't pick a difficult one if you're just starting guitar. Pick an easy guitar song and say, OK, I want to learn to play this song. And then that's something you can keep in the back of your head as you're learning the basics of the guitar, that that's sort of where you're aiming at. Now, it might be the case that you reach that point relatively soon. It may be the case, OK, after like a week or two, you're able to play that song and you're saying, OK, this is great. This is easy, but I was wanting something more challenging. On the other hand. It may be the case that you work towards that direction and it is more challenging. It does take you a little bit more time than you thought. And so I think one of the other important constraints here is to look at how much time you're willing to invest or what kind of constraints you're willing to work under. So. A classic example, if you're really busy, is to say, "Okay, what time am I going to allocate in order to work on this goal of learning guitar? And it could be I'm going to spend three hours on Sunday or it could be, you know, I'm going to spend 20 minutes a day. But whatever you pick, that will start to constrain your time and actually put in the time to actually work on it. I think the problem a lot of people have is we start with good intentions. We start with the idea of, oh, yeah, I'm going to learn this and put in as much time as I can. And then we find that learning actually is a little bit frustrating. And because we don't have that scaffolding in place, it's always easier to just surf on YouTube or or go on Facebook or do something that doesn't actually push you mentally or force you to deal with frustration or force you to deal with learning something new. And so I think if you actually allocate some time, whether that's through a class, whether that's your own private study, that's going to be the thing that is going to guide and structure your project.
1: Yeah. One thing that you mentioned that I found really helpful was that how there are different project formats and so different ways to either say, OK, you're spending two hours a day or what were the different project formats of ultra learning?
0: Yeah. So the way that I talk about in the book is that there's sort of three ways that I want people to think in the back of their head about ways they could apply ultra learning or take on an ultra learning project. So the first way is the kind of classic all in for a short burst of time type project. And I think this is particularly useful if you're expecting some gap in your schedule. Or you're expecting some new opportunity to necessitate learning something as quickly as possible. So the classic example is student who's, you know, between classes or if you're transitioning between a new career. Obviously, it makes sense that whatever skill you need to learn, you should learn it as quickly as possible because you might not have that time again. Now, those things tend to happen infrequently. So it's not usually the case you can say, oh, well, I've got two months off coming up so I can take advantage of that. But they do happen more often than I would think. When I was doing the research, I found quite a few people who that was where they did their projects was I want to switch careers from doing this to doing that. So naturally, it makes sense to do it in this burst. The other type of project, which I think is the more normal routine project, is to allocate a certain amount of time as a part-time project. So as I said, you know, it could be that 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day, it could be, you know, 3 hours on a weekend day. It could be something that happens according to a schedule so you have it twice a week, you invest an hour, but you actually schedule out the time and you decide what you're willing to commit. And then the third way, and the one way that I think is very useful is to think about all the learning that you're already doing, so all the stuff that you have to do well in your job, the things that you have to log for professional development hours, the ways that you're already having to figure things out and learn things on your own, these things as well can also be seen as, as like little ultra-learning projects that just kind of come up in the course of day-to-day life. And there are also opportunities to, instead of approaching those things with, ugh, now I have to do this, or you have some frustration, you can approach them with kind of a gusto of like, okay, how could I make these things? as profitable or as effective as possible. And so I think if you take the things that you already have to learn and really approach them with a new mindset, you can go even further with them.
1: I love this because I feel like we're in this time period of the world changing so much. So there's a lot of people that are in their careers that want to shift over and they're not exactly sure if they have the capacity to learn. And then there's the other side of the people that Can't college is more expensive now. And so a lot of people can't afford to go to school for a degree. And frankly, it takes so long for curriculum to be updated these days that most of the (laughs) forefront of what's changing, like technology or marketing, isn't going to be reflected in the curriculum. So to be able to learn something on our own is so important. But included in all of these changes is that there's more distraction than ever. And I know your second principle of ultra learning is focus. So what are some tips to help us focus better?
0: So I break down the problem of focus into three parts. So the first part is getting started focusing or also known as procrastination. And this is a real challenge for a lot of people because They never even get out of the gate. They never even start doing the thing that's difficult that they have to do to learn. And so this is often a challenge, I think, not so much of a lack of time, even though that's usually what people blame it on. They say, oh, I don't have enough time to do X or Y. And, you know, sometimes that's true. Sometimes learning that thing is not a high priority and they're simply too busy. But more often I find that we do have time. We're watching television, we're playing games, we're doing things that aren't super productive or aren't things that really are moving us in the direction of our goals. The reason that we don't do these projects or that we don't actually make progress on them isn't because we don't have time, but because learning is scary, learning is frustrating. And especially if you're learning effectively, it often does stretch you mentally. That is what learning is, is getting your mind to do things that it couldn't do before. And that naturally involves a certain amount of discomfort. It doesn't have to be painful, but I think the idea that it's going to be super relaxing and easy to do is also something that we should avoid that notion. And so I think to overcome these sort of feelings, one of them is to have the motivation. So we talked a little bit about kind of creating that project that you can get really excited about. I think if you're not excited about a project, it's probably not worth pursuing. But if you can think of a project, that you're, you know what, I really always wanted to play guitar or speak Spanish, or I really want to know how to do programming because I want to get out of this crappy job I have and go to something new. You know, if you can get excited about it, that motivation will help. And then the second thing is to how do you break it down so that you can actually get started? And so there are some things like the Pomodoro technique and other things where you focus on just working on it for a little bit. So one of the tools that I use often is if I want to engage in something and I know it'll be a little bit frustrating. So I'm excited about it in the abstract, but in the actual doing of it, I often procrastinate. Then I often focus on a smaller goal. So just doing it for 10 minutes a day, for instance, or Scheduling the time and if I only have to do, show up to it. So, you know, the classic example is going to the gym and you just have to go to the gym. You don't have to actually work out. And that sounds a little counterproductive, like why go to the gym and not work out until you realize that the hard part about going to the gym is getting your bag ready and going to the gym and actually showing up there. And so if you can apply the same mindset to learning, I'm going to just schedule this tutoring session for this language or I'm just going to spend five minutes doing the programming, you can overcome a lot of procrastination. The other two problems that I talk about are distraction, which is when you're in the middle of working on something, you're already working on it and then your phone beeps or someone knocks on your door or you just feel this really strong mental urge to give up. Those are also problems to avoid and they can be treated in much the same way by working on what are the specific things that are distracting you and either toning down the volume on those or coming up with little psychological hacks that can push you forward. And then finally, the third part of focus that I talk about is the right quality of focus. And this is sort of an understudy problem because I think a lot of people have heard already considerable amounts about procrastination distraction. But I was actually very interested in research that shows that the level of focus from kind of a very sharp, hyper-focused alert state, to being kind of a relaxed, diffuse state actually impacts our cognition and our thinking. And sometimes it's the case that the more relaxed state is better for learning and performance on some tasks that are more complicated because they allow the mind to perform in a little bit more of a relaxed manner.
1: And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need 8 glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes, so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. All rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks, so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinkelement.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. All of those things are things that I actually use in my life. And one of them, this isn't necessarily learning, but Mm. it's around habit-based. And I find that I like to meditate every single morning, but I will end up procrastinating it if I don't have everything ready. So I keep a yeah. nook with my meditation pod and my headphones, and I choose one soundtrack that I use for the whole week so that I don't have to add another choice to my repertoire in the morning. And so it's yeah. just ready to go and it's so helpful. And then, yes, when I am trying to focus on any sort of work, I keep distractions at bay. Everything goes on. I use the forest app and plant a tree, so I'm not allowed to use my phone. And <laughs> it's so helpful. But I also learned from an NLP expert that that thing you were talking about with the more relaxed state of mind, there's research Mm. that shows that we go into tunnel vision when we're really trying to focus on something or when we're angry or in a deep emotion. And if you can just expand your vision to your periphery a little bit by putting your fingers out to the side and jiggling your fingers and make sure your vision expands to the periphery and then watch a YouTube video that you're trying to learn or then hear a lecture. You're going to retain it in a different way. And I just found that fascinating.
0: Yes. And I think that there's also some benefit to having this kind of playful attitude towards the learning you're doing. I think a lot of the reasons we get frustrated and we, we give up and we don't persist in learning is because there's that critical self voice is kind of like, oh, you know, you're not good at this and you're doing it wrong. And uh, oh, you already learned this. How have you forgotten it already? And that attitude can be very damaging because it can kind of really motivate you to be like, oh, you should just give up on this. And I think the attitude you kind of want to have is you want to like, be bad at the thing that you're doing, but kind of have fun with it, you know? So if you're learning programming or if you're learning guitar, if you're learning, you got to kind of approach the fact that when you're starting out, you're going to be bad at it. But that's sort of a fun, playful thing that you're going to kind of make mistakes. And okay, well, I'll try, but don't have this sort of really strong. If I fail, then I'm a failure and then I can't do this because that kind of voice and that sort of self-talk, I think, can also interfere with your ability to learn or or really it makes it a much more unpleasant experience.
1: So the third principle is directness. And what I got from this is it's basically like you learn the skill you need without wasting any time. So if you're learning a language instead of just playing on an app, actually go out and talk to a real person. Am I getting that principle correctly?
0: Well, so the idea behind this principle is that it draws on Basically, over a century of research showing that human beings struggle at what is known as transfer. So transfer of learning is when you learn something in one context, let's say in a classroom, and then you are asked to apply it in a different context, let's say in real life. And what we've known from studies that go back decades is that this is more difficult to do than people typically assume. So there's this kind of notion of brain training games that are very popular that, like, okay, well, if you do some activity that's completely unrelated, it'll just improve your mind for all sorts of other things. And we now know. From lots of research that this isn't probably how the mind works, that when the mind learns something or when you acquire skill and knowledge, it tends to be quite specific. And even worse, it tends to stay stuck in the situations that you learned it in. And this sounds like a disadvantage, but it may actually be an advantage of how your brain is hardwired. Because after all, if every single memory from your life were constantly being activated at all times in all situations, your thinking would be a mess, right? So your brain has learned to kind of silence those thoughts and those ideas and those memories and skills to just the situations that they're necessary. And the problem is that when you start to learn things, if you learn that this vocabulary knowledge for your Spanish class is only really useful in the Spanish class, you're going to have a hard time remembering it and using it in real life. And this can also apply because the skill that you actually learn, so the way that you learn it, is quite different from how you actually want to apply it. So the classic example of language learning is that you go on Duolingo and it gives you a sentence to translate and it gives you a word bank below and you have to tap with your finger on the right words in the right order and maybe there's like six words that make up the sentence and there's like ten words in the word bank. Now the problem is that this kind of superficially feels like you're learning the language but if you actually have to say a sentence to someone, or you actually have to have a conversation with someone in the language. It's actually almost nothing like this, that what you have to do with your mind is quite, quite different from this sort of trivial task of tapping on the right words. And so although you're going to learn a little bit, maybe you're only learning like 20% or 10% of what's actually required in order to have a conversation. So you spend six months doing this Duolingo app, you spend six months tapping on the things and you collect gems and points and thumbs up and all this kind of good stuff. And then you go on your trip to Rome and you try to speak in Italian and you find out, oh wow, I don't remember almost any of the stuff. Maybe it's me or maybe language learning is hard. And the problem was directness. The problem was this transfer issue where the thing you were practicing was only a small part or it was only partially related to the thing you actually wanted to get good at. And so the idea of directness is that whenever you want to learn a new skill or knowledge, The first thing you should start thinking about is where do I want to apply this? What kind of situations am I going to apply it in? And what am I actually going to be doing in those situations? And if you can really vividly imagine that from the beginning, you can start to construct situations or practice scenarios which are going to be similar. And then even if they're not perfect, you're going to hopefully be transferring maybe going like 80 or 90 percent and not like 10 or 20 percent, which is often the case with more passive forms of learning.
1: So that makes a whole lot of sense of why every time I open an app, my thoughts are translated in Spanish. (laughs) Just
0: kidding. Yes, yes.
1: (laughs) So there is one thing when it comes to this directness, though, especially with languages. I mean, humans love to be good at stuff and we don't like to show off our weaknesses. So did you have any tips on dropping the ego in those times so that you can fully immerse yourself in the learning process?
0: Well, I think part of it is setting up the expectations, right? So we already talked about having this kind of playful attitude, but I think part of the challenge as well is that you get into these situations where you can't perform and not performing enacts a kind of social cost. And because it enacts a social cost, you feel bad. And then there's all this negative emotion. And, and the negative emotion overrides you from even participating. So the classic example is you're going to go up, and yeah, obviously the right way to learn stand up comedy would be to go do open mics, but you don't have any material. You go up there, and you're not funny, and you bomb, and then you don't want to do it again. And so I think part of this sort of challenge here, and I think what is really the art of what makes directness interesting is that you want to choose an activity that simulates as much as possible the thing that you want to get good at so that you're maintaining that transfer. But you also want to make something that's approachable enough that you can actually perform and you can actually do something with it. So I think that often the real art of learning is kind of figuring out how to make these staircases between these kind of real gulfs or these bridges, rather, between these real gulfs of where you are right now and where you want to be. So for learning a language, I think there's lots of things you can do. One of them is just to simply hire a tutor. So you can go to an an online website like italki.com and practice a conversation, even if it's terrible and halting, with someone who you've paid to listen to your terrible halting conversation so you don't feel as bad. But then also things like, When I was doing my own language learning project, one of the big things that I learned very early on in the language was how to say, I have a project to just speak your language in order to learn it or or something equivalent to that phrase. And that immediately changed people's reaction to me because in the beginning, they might be thinking, well, why on earth is this person using their terribly broken Spanish or Portuguese or Mandarin Chinese to try to communicate with me? Like, certainly it would be easier for them to use English. But as soon as you say that, now they become your ally. Now they're like, oh, okay, I'll try to help them along because I'm good at this thing and they're not yet and I want to help them. And so I think even just co-opting your environment so that everyone kind of knows what you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it that way, I think can often be a real help in creating an encouraging environment rather than one that will be brutally penalizing to you.
1: Yeah, it's so true. When people feel like they're a part of your project or they're assisting in your project, whether it's your learning or your business growth or whatever... It's a whole different mindset or a whole different energy that comes to it. So that's such a good tip. And then on the next one, drill. It's attack your weakest point, which is so funny because we want to spend less time on the parts that we suck at, you know. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. we want to spend more time on the parts that feel good doing it. So what are some of your tips on really focusing on your weakest points? Are you trying to integrate the weakest points in with the things you're good at to keep your motivation up? Are you supposed to just kind of seclude your weakest points and work on those alone? Or how do you do that one?
0: Well, so the idea behind drill is that any skill that you want to learn can often feel overwhelming because there's just too much going on. So again, using a language learning as an example, when you're speaking, you have to think about pronunciation, grammar, vocabulary. You have to think about what your intentions are to communicate. You have to listen to this other person. Maybe there's other stuff going on as well. I mean, there's so many things going on. It's impossible to keep track of all of it especially when you're in the beginning part of learning a skill, or even professional skills, you know, you're trying to become a better writer or better podcaster or better person who's doing marketing. And there's so many little things that are involved in doing your job well, that it can be often difficult to manage all of them simultaneously. And so the idea behind drill is that effective learners understand that in order to get over that hurdle of just being overwhelmed, you have to isolate. So you have to find some aspects and work on a proportion of it. So if we were talking about the directness idea that you want to have transfer, so you want to not be doing some activity where it only accounts for 10% of the goal, well, this is kind of the opposite of that, that what you want to look at is what is the 10% that's causing you the most trouble and work on that in isolation so you don't have to deal with the other 90%, at least for part of the time you spend learning. And so I think focusing on your weakest point can definitely be an important part of that process. And I think the reason that a lot of people kind of avoid drills or they have a bad feeling about drills is that when they think back to school, the drills were just foisted upon them okay just do these vocabulary exercises do these grammar exercises and they weren't motivated from the student saying oh you know what i don't really understand how to conjugate verbs i should really practice that they were just another step in the curriculum and so i think what you ought to do as a learner is be motivating your own decisions about what you should be working on so look at the things that you're doing in your life look at the things that you want to get good at and try to figure out what components do they break down to so what are the little atomic pieces of that. And how could you get better at those pieces? How could you figure out how do I get a little better at this and a little better at that? And I think if you can break it down and work on it in that way, that when you bring it back together and work on all the pieces, you will be much better on the whole.
1: Yeah, I remember learning piano and taking the parts that my fingers would always slip up on and just sitting there and practicing. It could be a combination of five, maybe 10 notes just over and over again until I knew it so much in my hand that it wasn't the part that was tripping me up anymore. So that makes perfect sense. So the next principle Is Principle number five is retrieval. And this is where you start to recall things from memory. And it makes a lot of sense in the language learning process. But what are some other ways in other modes of learning or in learning different types of things that retrieval works?
0: Well, I'm assuming that most of the people who are listening here have read a book before or they have listened to a book before if they are listening to one and maybe they do that regularly. And so this is the perfect example of a situation where retrieval applies because there is an, actually a very interesting study where the researchers, Jeffrey Karpicki and Janelle Blunt, decided to split students up into multiple groups and they got them to use different studying approaches. So one of the groups, they got to do repeated reviews. So they were given a text and just asked to read it over and over and over again. And then another group, they were asked to do free recall, which meant that they read it once, they closed the book, and then you just try to remember, without looking at it, everything that was in it. And the very interesting thing about this is that after they did this, they asked the students, well, how well do you think you learned the material? And those who did repeated review were like, I learned the material so well, I know this thing down. Whereas those who did free recall were like, oh, geez, I don't remember much at all. However, if you actually test them, it's those who do free recall that do much better. And so the implication of this is that when you listen to things such as this podcast or maybe an audiobook, or maybe read a book, when you are doing that activity, you actually don't remember most of it. Maybe if you're lucky, you'll remember the gist and you'll remember some, a few key ideas, but you'll probably forget much of it, especially much of the details you'll probably forget. And so sometimes that's okay. Sometimes it's okay if you just got the general gist of a book or an idea, but there's a lot of books, there's a lot of ideas. They could really make an impact on your life if you really knew them deeply, if you really understood them. And so the idea behind retrieval is that the way to do that, the way to really understand a book is not to just read it over and over and over again, but to try to practice it, to try to Close the book and see what you can recall, to try to have conversations about it, to try to summon up things from memory rather than simply repeat it. And this is a robust effect that has been shown in many studies. And so I think the idea and lesson of retrieval is that if you want to be able to actually recall something, you need to practice remembering it rather than just looking it over and over again.
1: So the next principle, principle number six, is feedback. And I've been thinking a lot about feedback in general. And obviously, this is when you go and talk to people. And if you're learning a language, you speak to them and you kind of see how hard it is to understand and be understood. Well, when I was doing a keynote speech intensive training, basically a public speaking training recently, we had a very specific feedback process where when we were asking for feedback on something, we'd ask for feedback on a specific point like delivery or speed or the material or our emotional inflection do we have a specific way to ask for feedback or is it generally just immersing yourself and seeing what happens?
0: So feedback was one of the more interesting things that when I was going through the research, because I kind of went into it with, well, feedback is very important for learning, obviously, you know, not only from my personal experience learning, it's always better when you have feedback, but just generally the idea that feedback is important. Learning is very important in the theory of deliberate practice, which is, K Anders Ericsson was a really influential idea for me in a lot of my own formative work on learning. And so I expected when I was going to go through the research that it was going to be like two thumbs up for feedback. Feedback's very important for learning. And the interesting thing is that it's actually kind of mixed. And so one of the studies that I did was a meta analysis I read from Abraham Kluger and Angelo Denisi. And they looked at hundreds of different studies on feedback and found that in nearly a little bit more than a third of the cases, feedback was actually negative. So there are certainly some situations where giving feedback doesn't help. It actually hinders learning. And so the reasons for this are somewhat complicated. They're not just one particular reason, but some of them are that a lot of feedback doesn't actually provide useful information. And sometimes it can provide information that impacts your motivation. So the classic example of that is the teacher saying, Oh, you're no good at this. You should just give up now. Well, I mean, that's feedback, but it doesn't really motivate you to learn more and perform better. But similarly, what the study's authors actually found is that praise, so giving people just, oh, you're so good at this. You're so smart, actually also is bad for motivation. That students, when they're not given kind of corrective feedback, they're not given things that they can improve. When they hear praise, their immediate instinct is, well, I'm going to work harder because I'm clearly good at this and I don't need to improve so much. And so I think that. There's a lot of information and feedback that isn't so helpful. And so what I found was that amongst the ultra learners, the people who really are successful at learning, that they're actually masters at filtering feedback. They're masters at figuring out what stuff should they pay attention to? What should they ignore? And especially what kind of information is it even possible to get? From this audience. So, I think again, at a a public speaking keynote where you have a lot of people who are expert speakers and asking them, what should I make better or what should I do better or worse? Well, often they will be able to provide useful feedback because these people have some experience public speaking and they have some thoughts on it. On the other hand, if you're a stand up comedian and you're giving a show and you ask people, okay, what about that joke? What do you think I could do to make it funnier? Well, most people aren't comedians. They probably can't tell you what to do to make it funnier. And so, I think having this kind of sense of not only what feedback is useful, but what feedback you need to ignore is so powerful. And so the dual advice for feedback is that, yes, you want to get lots of feedback and not getting feedback is definitely going to hinder your project. But then learning to filter the right kind of feedback and really emphasizing the feedback that's going to actually count is so important and indeed essential if you really want to improve at these skills.
1: I mean, you're right. So many people have an opinion about everything. (laughs) So it's such a good skill to be able to learn what feedback's actually valuable and what stuff is just the opinions of other people. Especially the more I learn about How people's own fear holds them back, they're often the first people to warn you about the risks of your upcoming project or about how something's not possible. And so to realize that most of the feedback somebody gets you is the same feedback they're giving themselves before they start a new project or before they start something that seems to be difficult to them, it's just a really valuable piece of knowledge to have because otherwise we're all just holding each other back. So the seventh principle of ultra learning is retention. And I'm sure we've all dealt with cramming for a test in school and not being able to remember any of it or being immersed in something at one moment and feeling like you know it. And then the moment you're out of that situation, you don't know what you're talking about anymore. So what are the tips for actually remembering and retaining the information that we learn?
0: Well, definitely. There's a few research-based findings that are very important, I think, for anyone who wants to retain things long-term. But I think I want to clarify, because there's two important points to make about retention. So first, there's the kind of immediate problem of forgetting things. So someone might be learning a language, for instance, and say, well, you know what, I learned that word yesterday, but I forgot it. I must just have a really bad memory. And they don't realize that uh, like almost everyone does this, that almost no one can memorize a word that they hear once and remember every single word they learn in a new language. You're going to be forgetting the words. And so therefore, the problem that you face is how do you create tools to minimize this problem because the default or the status quo indeed is forgetting in a lot of these things and forgetting so quickly that you're forgetting as you're learning. And so it's a little bit can feel like you're running on a treadmill at times. So that's the first issue of retention. And there's some specific tools that are useful, such as Anki for spaced repetition systems and mnemonics for being able to deal with those problems. In the long term, however, and I think this is a sort of an understudied or a problem that doesn't get discussed as much, is the fact that when you learn something, let's say you learn a skill, and then you don't use it that much for several years, you'll often forget a lot of it. And I think this is the more interesting thing, because as you learn more and more things throughout your life, this is going to be the real problem you face is that something you learned 10 years ago. Oh, yeah, what was that? And so I think for a lot of people listening here, I mean, if do you how much do you remember of what you learned in your school education, you probably forget a lot of it, even though you studied it quite hard, maybe even did Quite well on some tests. And so I think the correct approach here is that there's different strategies that you can use for dealing with forgetting. One of the most important ones is the spacing effect. So basically, what the research shows is that the more you can space out your learning into different moments in time so that you don't practice something all at once, repeat it over and over and over again, but you spread it out over different intervals, you'll be able to retain information much longer. For the same amount of studying time. So the classic example is if you could cover a piece of information, you cover it 10 times in a row or you cover it once per day over 10 days, the person who did the latter is going to retain the information far longer. So the spacing effect is very important. So the more you can kind of reintroduce yourself to skills, even if it's just for a little burst that you've learned over a time period throughout your life you'll be able to retain those skills and knowledge longer. The other thing that's helpful is mastery, actually going beyond the skill can actually improve your durability of it. So one of my favorite studies involved learning algebra and what they found was that it didn't matter whether you were a scored an A in the class or you scored an F in the class or well maybe not an F in the class but like a C in the class your decay of your knowledge Proceeded at the same rate. So people who learn more remembered more later, but they forgot at the same pace, the same rate as those who didn't learn it as well, which is somewhat distressing because you'd be hoping that students who learn things well would be able to actually retain it longer. And it doesn't seem like that's the case. However, there was an exception. The group that went on to learn calculus had a much flatter forgetting curve for the information they studied. And the researchers hypothesized that by overlearning, by practicing the algebra again and again in calculus, they were able to make it much more durable. And so if you want to really be able to retain things, often the key is to overlearn it or practice it beyond what is required in your current subject, but to go beyond that. And so For instance, if you're learning a language, the way that we often teach it in school is that, okay, you learn some early phrases and then you move on to harder words and then harder words and then harder words. And you don't go back to those early phrases. Whereas if you're actually using a language to communicate to immersion, there's going to be some core phrases that you say again and again and again and again and again. And And because you say them so many times, they get really ingrained in your memory and they will last much longer than they will with the classroom approach.
1: So I'm excited about the next principle because it's intuition and we talk about intuition so much on this podcast, but I have a feeling that intuition in this case is going to be a little (laughs) bit different than the intuition that we are constantly trying to get in touch with. So how does intuition play a part in the learning process?
0: So the kind of intuition I want to talk about, because you're right, it's sometimes difficult to pick a word that will perfectly elicit the concept that you're driving at. But the kind of intuition I want to talk about is people who seem to have kind of a magical intuition about certain subjects. So the person that I talk about in the book is Richard Feynman, who seemed to have this kind of magical intuition for math and physics. Like you could ask him like ridiculously difficult questions and he would just like spit out the answer. And it was kind of a difficulty of how do people do that or how do chess grandmasters just see what the right move is? They don't have to think about it. They just know, oh, you'll you do this, obviously. And I think this can often be something that stymies us in our learning efforts because we see someone who just they just get the right answer immediately. And we're thinking, like, how could they possibly have done this? How does their mind possibly work that they're able to just summon it up instantly? And so the idea behind intuition in this chapter and what I wanted to talk about was that there's a lot of research on the psychology known as chunking. So chunking is basically the idea that the way our minds work and process information is that there is a very limited workspace to actually consider ideas, that we're not actually able to hold that much information simultaneously in our head, that we're quite limited there. So the typical estimate for chunks is the traditional one was between five and nine, but seven plus or minus two. But nowadays, people tend to say that it's probably more like three or four things that we can actually hold in our mind at a time. And this creates some problems because if you want to deal with complicated ideas, there's going to be more than three to four parts. And so the way our brains deal with this is that when we see patterns and we learn them through our experience, we can kind of chunk those things into one component. So instead of hearing it as many, many different components, you all have to juggle simultaneously, you will just see it as one big component. And so the classic studies of that are things like if you give someone a sequence of letters, like let's say... FMC, BBI, and then IAA. It would be hard to remember those nine letters in a row. However, if I said FBI, MBA, CIA, you would have no problem remembering it. And that's because those latter three are chunks that you recognize, even if you know what the component letters are. And so the idea here is that if you are struggling with your intuition in a new domain, so maybe you're struggling in a new subject or you're entering a new career or new profession and it seems bewildering, don't beat yourself up. Don't feel like you're not smart enough. The idea here is that you need to acquire more patterns and experience so that it will be easier to automatically see what the right answer is and to automatically process what people are talking about. And the kind of flip side of that is that if you are struggling with it, then what you ought to do, because our working memory is limited, because this workbench is limited, is that you ought to try to slow things down in order to understand it. So when you encounter something that you don't understand, you can use what I call the Feynman technique. And the Feynman technique basically means you write down what it is that you're trying to understand. And you try to give an explanation to yourself as if you were teaching it to someone. And what this does is it first it allows you to write things on paper so you can offload things off your limited working memory capacity. And then also what it is able you to do is it enables you to laser in on the things you don't understand. So instead of just being generally confused about an idea or a subject or what argument someone's making, you can laser into a very specific question that you can ask someone in order to clear up your misunderstanding. So this is sort of the idea behind intuition, because it's often the most mysterious, indeed frustrating part of learning.
1: Well, our final principle is experimentation. And so is that just as it sounds where we just play in what we've learned? Or is there any tips for that?
0: No trick questions on this one. Yeah. The idea behind experimentation is very simple, because I've had conversations with lots of people, and many people just want a recipe. They just want a step by step formula that they can do step one, step two, step three. And this was kind of a challenge when I was writing this book, because the thing that combines really all the ultra learners together is the fact that they're not following the rules, the fact that they're doing something somewhat quirky and idiosyncratic. And if we just talk about following the rules, we're really just talking about the traditional education system. And so the idea that I wanted to promote here is an attitude of experimentation. And I think this is something that it's a lot easier to see in practice. It's really hard to fully convey to someone who doesn't appreciate it. But the idea is not to have a formula. The idea is not to have some recipe, but the idea is to have lots of different tools and to understand a few basic principles, and to just try things out. And when they don't work, to try something else out. And I certainly have made many mistakes in learning things in my own life, even knowing principles, even knowing a lot of this stuff. And so I think it's only natural to approach things and not always get it right, right off the bat. And to just treat those things as experiments that you can learn from and try something new with later.
1: Well, I am super excited about this book because I consider myself a lifelong learner. And I love the idea that we can just constantly become new people as our lives go on by obtaining new information and new skills. And it's so exciting. And this learning does not have to end at the end of your schooling. And so what else is exciting about it is that even if you don't have the time to take three months and dedicate your life towards one project to really get fluent in a new language or whatever, each of these tools on their own is so beneficial to just improve the way that you learn, even if it is at a slower pace. So thank you so much for all of the wisdom that you shared and for taking the time to put so much research together. So for listeners who want to know how to ultra learn a little bit better, where's the best place for them to connect with you online?
0: So you can check out my website, which is at scotthyoung.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. I've got thousands of articles there, including a relatively new podcast where I'm also narrating a lot of the articles I've written. So you can listen to some of my best ideas if you prefer that than reading. And also there's links to my book, Ultra Learning. You can get it at your bookstores, including on Audible, where I narrate the audio version too, if you want to keep in this journey of learning how to learn better.
1: All the links from this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 100. I can't believe we're on episode 100, guys. This is like a milestone. I need to celebrate. And this episode came at the perfect time because I think when you're building anything, there's moments where you have to stop and decide where you're gonna go next. So there's so much I can build with mind love, and a lot of that's gonna take a good amount of learning. I need to master new skills, I need to face some hard subjects that I've never done before, I need to learn about marketing, and it's all so exciting, but it can be intimidating. So it's so helpful to have a framework around learning that actually feels achievable. So I want to know, what ultra-learning projects are you guys excited to take on? If you start any, tell me your plan. Message me at mindlovemelissa or take a photo and share it to your story and tag me. And I'm going to share back all of the things that you guys have been sharing with me. This way, your new project gets a little bit of promotion. You guys encourage each other and we create some community. I love connecting with you guys on social. I feel like a lot of us are becoming friends. We're getting to know each other. I get to see a day in your life so I can create even better content for you. And we get to talk a little. Otherwise, podcasting can be kind of lonely. It's just me on the other side of the mic, just broadcasting. So Instagram has been such a cool way for me to hear from you and develop that relationship on the other side. So please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you love the show, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. It's another one of the best ways for growing the show. It takes a few minutes for you, but means the world to me. And in a couple weeks, I'm going to be reading some of my newest reviews on the show. So you'll get a shout out. So as always, thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mindlove. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift.